All right, guys, let's go ahead and uh, start wrapping up. And we'll go ahead and get started. All right, let me, uh, let me pray for us before we begin. Uh, Father, I really pray that you'd help us to correctly interpret and understand your word and to get out of it what you intend for us to get out of it, Lord, that we would be transformed uh, and conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Uh, and Lord, uh, I just pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures uh, so that it bear fruits in our lives that glorifies you. Uh, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, so before I hop into this passage, this straightforward, there's a lot of really weird stuff going on in the book of Acts. And if we aren't equipped with the proper tools to interpret like what's going on, we can get to some really weird and dangerous spots. Uh, so I really want us to take a step back. And anytime we approach scripture, you can approach it like from a 30,000 foot view or with a microscope. And both are needed and both are helpful at different points. You know, you see certain things with a microscope you would never see with the naked eye. But if you're trying to view a mountain range with a microscope, it's not going to go so well. Uh, you're, you're not going to see what you're supposed to see. So I really want to give us a framework or the proper tools for how we should be interpreting the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, in specifically the book of Acts, but in general, just the Bible. And some of these you've probably heard. And so it may seem like I'm not getting to the book of Acts for a little bit. I apologize, but just stick with me. Um, but I want to give us you know, five basic principles for how we should be interpreting the book of Acts and specifically in the Bible generally uh, before we begin. One, you probably heard this, like the Bible is, is literal. I think that's helpful, but I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. We should ask, what's the plain and most straightforward meaning of the scripture? Uh, because yes, the Bible is literal, but when it says the arm of the Lord is not short that it can't save or you know it's not talking about the lord has a really long physical arm so he could save you that's not what it means by a literal but what's the intended and most straightforward meaning and kind of connected with that is what what genre of literature are we reading um poetry should be inter interpreted differently than uh, a narrative which we happen to be in a narrative in the book of acts um, and also like hyperbole or parables or um, uh, apocalyptic literature. Those things, they're meant to be interpreted in a different way than they're not just uniform across how you interpret all those different genres. Uh, we should interpret less clear scripture in light of more clear scripture. So we interpret scripture in light of scripture. All scripture is equally inspired, but not all scripture is equally clear. And so that, and there's some passages that are really confusing. And when we get to those passages, we should go back to the more clear passages to help us interpret those passages. Uh, what is the context? And by context, we're not talking about just literary context. What is the cultural context? What is the historical context in which we find ourselves? And that's really kind of where that microscope versus 30,000 foot view. Sometimes we can get so focused on the minutia of what's going on that we forget the overall context and lose the meaning of what's actually happening. And what's the writer's chief purpose in writing? What is their main agenda? Uh, you know, one of the assumptions that we should have when we come to scripture is that God meant for it to be understood. 
and that God is using the intentions, you know, although scripture is inspired and is God's ultimately the author, he's using human instruments and their intentions and their personalities even to communicate that. So that's really important as we come to the book of Luke. And I really want to, uh, not the book of Luke, Acts, which is kind of Luke 2. Um, but it's really important and really I want to focus in on, on two of those. What's Luke's main purpose in writing the book of Acts? We don't really have to guess because he straightforwardly tells us, actually all the way at the beginning of the Luke, he says, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, so that you may have certainty regarding the things that you have been taught. So that is one of his big overarching things of what he's trying to accomplish with what he's communicating. I want you to have certainty regarding the things you were taught. What specific things are being taught? Well, really, it all centers around who the person of Jesus Christ is and the gospel. First of all, what is the gospel actually? What is the gospel message? Is the gospel true? How can we know that this is actually true? And another big one that I think sometimes that we overlook in our day and age is who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel message to? Um, and so those are some of the big questions that Luke is trying to address or the big themes through the book of Acts and, and meant to communicate. And then another one is in Brian, as well as others who have been up here to teach, I've pointed this out. We need to go back to the beginning of Acts in Acts 1.8, where Jesus has just, is just before his ascension, the disciples are like, all right, you're going to set up your kingdom now? Are you, are you going like, you know, to do the whole thing now? And they're like, and Jesus is like, hey, calm down. It's not for you to know that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And really the rest of the book of the Acts is exactly how God fulfills that promise and how he's accomplishing that through the, uh, the apostles' hands, or the, the, through the apostles and through the church at large. And so it's really important for us to keep that in mind as we're reading the book of Acts. Luke is trying to provide certainty regarding the things we've been taught, and he's demonstrating or describing how Jesus is fulfilling his promise and his mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the world. Um, and that brings us to our first point. The book of Acts is primarily descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. So the book of Acts, and what I mean by that, descriptive is, is describing something that happened versus prescriptive is this is the way that something should be. So an example of something that's descriptive and not prescriptive, uh, in the Old Testament, the patriarchs, uh, a lot of the godly patriarchs, had tons of wives. And when you start, you start seeing that like with, I don't know if Abraham was the first one or not, but you start seeing that they have multiple wives and you get up to Solomon who had hundreds of wives. The Bible's not trying to provide a model for us to follow. Like, hey guys, if you really want to be godly, get yourselves a lot of wives. That's not what the Bible is doing, but it is accurately and honestly describing what happened. And that's what Luke is doing here. Prescriptive is something that you should do or telling you, and I'm not saying that the book of Acts is never prescriptive. You get some of those, like where Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and, you will see, you know, and you'll be forgiven, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That's a prescription, but it's a specific prescription in the broader context of a description of Luke describing how the, the gospel is going forward in the church. So those, that's the first point. So now with that said, I want to kind of provide the backstory, that 30,000 foot view for us of where we have been up until this point. 
So at the beginning, we already already went over Luke or not Luke Acts one eight, where Jesus gives the promise of the Holy Spirit and how they're going to receive power and how He's going to accomplish His mission through them, uh, being witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit comes in Acts two, on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls. They all speak in tongues, and that's some of the weirdness that we're going to talk about a little bit here. They all speak in tongues, and it's a sign to those around. Um, And then the church starts to flourish, but it's only in Jerusalem. It's really important that we keep in mind that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, and where we're at in in the the Acts narrative as far as seeing that mission fulfilled. Uh, You'll see why that's so important here in a little while. The church starts to flourish, and then persecution starts to amp up and get a little hotter and hotter. Um, And then there's this complaint by the Hellenist Jews. And Hellenist Jews, they're Jews, but they're heavily influenced by the Greek culture and the other, like, more pure Jews are a little bit more suspicious of them and maybe not treating them the same as others. There's a complaint by the Hellenist Jewish widows that they're being neglected, or that the widows are being neglected. So... They chose seven, and I don't know if you caught this. He said seven from among you, likely from Hellenist Jews, uh, to be uh, what we a lot of times refer to as deacons to help ensure equity and fair treatment and care for those people so the apostles can continue to focus on preaching and the ministry of the word. And then we're highlighted. There's two specific people that are highlighted out of that group of seven. First of all, we get Stephen who powerfully starts refuting the Jews, and then they didn't like that. Uh, they didn't like that he was really clear with, you know, about repentance and Jesus and their rebellion, and so they stone him and put him to death. And then that's also when we see Saul, who's an important character in the book of Acts, come in for the first time, and Saul is like, he is right there participating in that. He is like, he hates, hates, hates the church. I mean, it is consuming him with rage, trying to, uh, to attack the church and bring it down. And then that persecution rise, you know, scatters them, and then that's where we see it go to Judea and Samaria for the first time. And uh, Philip, the second one, is the next one that, that goes. And he goes down to Samaria, preaches the gospel to them. They receive it. Interestingly, again, this is the second thing where, point where we see the Holy, they're filled with the Holy Spirit but not when they first hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them, and they were able to tell that the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them, and they have to send for, or they send for Peter, an apostle, to go lay hands on them so they can receive the Holy Spirit. And then they do that, and we'll, again, come back to that here in just a second. And then uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, which, interestingly enough, I know a lot of times we think of Cornelius as the first Gentile convert. He wasn't. The Ethiopian eunuch is the first one that we actually read about. Um, although, but Cornelius is more of a watershed or milestone moment of the gospel coming to the Gentiles. Um, and so the gospel comes to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then, um, and then Saul has his Dam- Damascus Road uh, uh, experience. And I apologize if I say Paul or Saul. You guys know who I mean. Um, he has this Damascus Road experience. He's blinded. And then God singles him out and chooses him for, to be an apostle and a witness to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Um, and then he has Ananias pray for him, who he's probably going to persecute Ananias. And then he says, Ananias, go pray for this dude to, for him to receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the third instance where we specifically see someone being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. 
Um, and then he is, and then Saul immediately starts preaching Jesus and proving that Jesus was the Christ. And just as a side note, that is a big theme that I think we overlook a lot of time in the book of Acts. It often says proving that Jesus was the Christ and proved like it wasn't just suggested or tried to influence them. Def uh, they're giving definitive proof. And it's not oft it's not all the time from uh, signs and wonders. It's from the scriptures. Uh, and that's a big point that I don't want us to miss. Um, but there's skepticism on the part of believers on if Saul's legit, because after all, he was trying to murder them all. Um, and so they're a little bit skeptical. Barnabas kind of convinced them to accept them in. And then years pass. Like, I know we go on to the next verse, but years pass. The gospel is still really just localized to Judea and Samaria. It hasn't really gone to the Gentile world yet. And that's what brings us but it, it continues to flourish and grow in Judea and, and Galilee and Samaria is what it says, but it hasn't gone to the Gentile world yet. And that's what brings us to this passage. So that's the context of where we're at. The gospel has not yet really definitively gone to the Gentiles in a way that is visible and widely accepted by the church yet. And so Peter starts going here and there, healing uh, Aeneas and raising Dorcas or uh, Tabitha. I'll go with Tabitha. It's a much more attractive name. Um, yeah, and um, which caused many to believe, and it puts them kind of in the general vicinity of Cornelius. Uh, and again, just a reminder, I'm doing a 30,000-foot you know, view here. There's a lot of details I'm going to kind of skate over because I want us to see some of the big picture things of what's going on. Um, and so he's, he, uh, Peter, first of all, Cornelius gets a vision. Interestingly enough, you know, God recognizes, you know, your, your alms and your prayers have risen up as a memorial before God, but that wasn't enough to save him. He still needed to hear the gospel. And so he said, you need to go hear this message from Peter so that you can truly be justified or saved. Um, and then Peter's praying. The next day, Peter's praying. Uh, he's hungry. It's around lunchtime. And then this vision of a sheep happens three times of all these unclean animals. And a voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, kill and eat which is a direct violation of the food laws of, of, you know, the Jewish food laws, which Peter, of course, like, no, by no means, Lord, I've never ate anything unclean. And God says, hey, don't call what God has called clean, unclean. And the point isn't the food. The point is the Gentiles. The Gentiles are included. And we'll get to this in a second. It's not like this was a new revelation that Jesus had never talked about before. It's not like there wasn't myriads of different prophecies in the Old Testament talking about the inclusion of the Gentile believers and that it was a big theme of, of throughout Jesus' entire ministry, but it still had not sunk in and, it, and God still needed to, to intervene and act as he always does with all of us. Um, but anyway, it happens three times and in case he was wondering what the interpretation was, Holy Spirit tells him, look, there's three guys down below. You need to go talk to them and do whatever they say without hesitation. Just go with them. And so in case he was wondering, oh, what does this mean? He, he, tell, he straightforwardly tells them and he goes with them. Peter gets the, the interpretation or the, what God's trying to communicate. God accepts the Gentiles. Um, and so he goes with them to Cornelius. Cornelius falls down to worship him. And Peter says, get up. I'm a man just like you. And then he's like, hey, you know, the fact that I'm here is like, this is not like Jews don't let people into their house or like it's unlawful for me to be in here with you. Right. But God has shown me that I shouldn't make distinctions or he doesn't show partiality, but he accepts people everywhere in all places. Uh, and as he starts preaching the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus and repentance and faith, 
the Holy Spirit falls on them. And now this is the fourth time that this has happened in the, book of Act, in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They all start speaking in tongues. And Peter says, well, can anyone forbid water that they should be baptized? Seeing as the Holy Spirit's fallen on them just as on us. And, and then they're baptized. And then it, the, and I know this is a long kind of backlog story, but it, it, it'll make sense. They're baptized, and then word gets to the circumcision party uh, or faction of the church um, back in Jerusalem, and they start criticizing Peter. Like, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, here, here's what happened. And he says, God said to do this. I obeyed him. And as I was preaching the message, like, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and, they st- and just as it did on us the beginning of the day of Pentecost, who was I to contest with God? And then that was proof to them. Like, well, then God granted repentance to leading to, to life to the Gentiles also. And that's where we come. Uh, that's where we're at in the story. And so why I started with like where I did at the very beginning of why it's important to know how to interpret this is a big deal throughout the whole book of Acts is the gospel going to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there are five instances in, uh, in the book of Acts where the Holy, someone's filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, or, and in three of those five, they speak in tongues. Uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, Samaria, where it doesn't say they spoke in tongues, but Simon the magician saw some outward manifestation of a sign that made him want to purchase the power to impart the Holy Spirit to others. So there was some powerful demonstration that he saw, like, I want me some of that. Paul, um, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, who it doesn't say in the book of Acts spoke in tongues, but later in Corinthians it says, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than y'all, yet in the church I'd rather speak five words with my intellect than 10,000 words with an unknown tongue. And then Acts 10, um, where it definitively says that they spoke in tongues. And then there's another one we'll get to, uh, Acts 19, where some of the disciples of John the Baptist, who hadn't really yet heard about Jesus, um, and Paul informs them about Jesus, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues and prophesy. And so, um, and I used to be victim to this wrong teaching. There's a teaching out there that will say, well, um, and it's more, one, there's a heretical, like, you definitely are not a Christian if you believe this, like, don't, uh, version of this. And then there's a more, you can still be a Christian, but I believe it's an error. Um, the first, I'll start with the wrong one, a wrong teaching that unless you, you're not truly filled with the Holy Spirit, unless you've spoken in tongues. Um, and that means you're not truly saved unless you've spoken in tongues. That is a wrong interpretation. That's, and that's not what the book of Acts is trying to communicate. Again, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, and then another one would be like a classic Pentecostal, in which I used to fall into this camp, um, which there's five instances in which someone's spoken. And um, let me back up. The classic Pentecostal teaching would be that uh, you're saved, but being filled with or baptized in the Holy Spirit is a subsequent experience to salvation. And the definitive proof that you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit or been filled with the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. And they get that from the book of Acts for all the reasons I just mentioned. Three out of five, it explicitly says they spoke in tongues. The other two, um, you know, we can kind of imply that they did. Um, 
But I think that's wrong. Uh, one, because if we interpret scripture in light of more clear scripture in Corinthians, it says not all will speak in tongues. So we know that uh, definitively. But these are milestone moments where the Holy Spirit, where God has to definitively show to people around that the gospel is, that the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon these people. First of all, when the Holy Spirit comes, it shows up in power to show that God's fulfilling the, the promise. There's an outward manifestation of it. In Samaria, the gospel going to the Samaritans for the first time, going to that second, you know, Jerusalem, Samaria, um, God definitively shows an outward sign. And the reason why uh, Peter has to come and pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a, a super weird uh, type of deal. That doesn't, it's not d- describing what should happen for us. We've been in a lot of trouble since Peter's long gone. Um, but he's an apostle. He's a pillar of the church. So it's the church recognizing that, that that is truly the work of God in their life. And then there's an outward manifestation confirming that to the other believers that they are included in the people of God. Uh, Paul, I mean, he was trying to kill them all. So they need some sort of outward manifestation that like this dude is legit as well. And then Cornelius, again, this isn't the first Gentile convert, but again, when the other Gentile, Philip was the one preaching, Peter, a pillar, the apostle of, of the church, he is the one that confirms the legitimacy and the inclusion of the Gentiles. Otherwise, it probably would have been rejected. And had there not been a definitive outward sign like that, uh, that, that was the crux. That was the thing that convinced the circumcision party. Like, well, who are we to argue with God? Obviously, like, uh, he, he put his sign and his seal on them. And so that's the question that, that, that was in the minds of the Jewish believers. And this is where the gospel definitively goes to the Gentiles, the Gentile world for the first time. And the church widely recognizes that and widely recognizes that you don't have to be circumcised or become a Jewish proselyte first but to be saved. Um, and so a couple of subpoints. I know we only have eight minutes left. Um, number one, God always fulfills his promises, but not our expectations. Or number two, actually. God always fulfills. I'm like Anson, getting the numbers wrong. Um, and what I mean by that, uh, Jesus straightforwardly told them, like he made a promise. You're going to receive power in the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I guarantee you that that was not, how this all played out was not at all in Peter's radar is what, like what he expected. And this is a theme that you see throughout all scripture. Um, God promised they would be witnesses to Gentiles, but it's still very unexpected. Um, they, they probably were expecting to you know, the apostles were expecting Jesus to have this powerful demonstration of it, setting up his political kingdom. Instead, Stephen gets killed. There's widespread persecution, and God uses that to fulfill his promise to spread the gospel. He uses persecution and suffering uh, to spread the, the gospel. The death of one of their most faithful witnesses what's caused the gospel to spread. Um, and how the Gentiles are to be included in the family of God. I'm sure no one was really expecting, even though it was clearly forecasted by Jesus, that you know, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to, we're not, um, it's not through works of the law. And actually, that's a big part of how, you know, and it's still a stumbling block today for a lot of people. 
that were justified by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law, that was not what anyone was expecting, even though that was promised. And that's, you know, God's not failing to fulfill his promises. That's, that's this, but it's not what we expected. Uh, Jesus as the Messiah is another example um, that kind of, and what I'm trying to do here is just show you a theme of how God is throughout scripture. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of every single prophecy in the Old Testament about him, definitively showing that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that God exists and that Jesus truly is the son of God. Yet he defied all expectations, their own expectations of what that would look like. Um, and you look at other examples like Joseph, you know, he says his brothers are going to come and bow down before him and he ends up in prison. Uh, and he ends up being falsely accused uh, and being sold into slavery. Moses and the people of Israel wandering in the desert. This is often how God acts, uh, is he always fulfills his promises, but often not in a way that we expect. Um, God confirms, and this is the third point, God confirms his gospel and ensures the success of his mission. So the success of this mission was all due to the power of the Holy Spirit and God acting and yes, he's using uh, human instruments, but you see that it's a big theme. I know we kind of glossed over it, but um, that's really what the healing of Aeneas and Tabitha are about. If you read right below them, it talks about, and many people turn to the Lord, um, that God is com continually confirming and affirming the gospel message and ensuring that the mission of, the God, uh, the mission of, of Jesus goes forward. That's why he basically had to knock Peter over the head with a vision and bring the people to his doorstep um, to ensure that the gospel goes forward to the Gentiles. God is the one who accomplishes the mission of, of the, the gospel and of Jesus ultimately. We're instruments, but ultimately it's not us. It's not powerful apostles. It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the fourth one, God's mission is heavily opposed by both believers and unbelievers. So it shouldn't shock us. Just because something is opposed and resisted doesn't mean that God's not in it, even if it's godly, Jesus-loving people who are opposing it sometimes. And I think that's a lesson for us. Um, I know the circumcision party a lot of times, you know, Paul uh, and, um, and uh, Galatians said, I, I wish they would... Uh, cut themselves off and let them be anathema if anyone, you know, is trying to add to the gospel. But I'm not so sure in that that is the same circumcision party as what we find here in Acts 11, because it says this circumcision, they criticized Paul at first, not Paul, they criticized Peter at first, but then they come around and they say, well, God's accepted them, obviously. But there was that initial resistance. And so I think that's important for us to know that God's mission is, and it's important for us to to understand that God's mission and his will is often opposed not just by unbelievers, but sometimes even by well-meaning believers who are just wrong. Um, and uh, number five, we are all susceptible to prejudice and blind spots. Um, I, you know, Peter, I, you know, we, we kind of knock on him a lot because he is hard-headed and had many failures, but um, he was a godly man. Uh, he was a, a, an apostle. And yet, and, and the thing is, he had been with Jesus through all, like this should not have been news to him. That's, that's what's kind of sh shocking on the outside, you know, me being super judgmental. Um, 
like he sent them out to the Gentiles. I mean, he uh, some examples I wrote down here. He already declared all all foods clean. That wasn't like he already that already had happened um, back in Mark. Actually, Jesus had healed many Gentiles and told multiple times that hey, many Gentiles are going to come and be included in the kingdom of God, while some of these Jews are cast out. He already knew about salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, and yet he still had prejudice and blind spots that were preventing him from from going forward and completing the mission of God. And that kind of connects to the the, uh, last point here. Overcoming prejudice is almost always an ongoing process. Um, This issue does not get solved once and for all and never come up again. It comes up again in Acts chapter 15, and Peter has to come to the defense again um, to and explain, like, look, why are we trying to put a load on the Gentiles that neither our fathers or, or, or us could bear? God's already, he's already spoken to this. The Gentiles are, are justified by faith alone and Christ alone, not by works of law, not by circumcision. Let's not add to it. Um, but, and this is one of Paul's main battles that he's always constantly having to fight in the epistles and throughout the book of, the, uh, book of Acts, is having to hammer home this point of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Um, and then, interestingly enough, the one through whom this message came to, Peter, Paul has to rebuke him later on for compromising on this in the book of Galatians. He says, I opposed him to his face because he wouldn't eat when certain people from, the, um, people from James came. Uh, he kind of separated from the Gentiles and went um, and, uh, and only associated with the Jews. And so he had to be corrected. So this shows us this is an ongoing process, and we shouldn't expect it to be an instantaneous fix in our lives either. So we need to recognize that we likely have blind spots, and the things are, the thing with blind spots are, um, that's my alarm to stop. The thing with blind spots is you're blind to them. You don't know they're there. That's why Christian community is so important. Um, And then also that this is an ongoing work that God's going to continue to have to work in us, and for us to be humble and patient as God works that out in all of us as well. Um, Time is up. I want to respect your time, so let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for what you've taught us through your word. I pray that it would bear fruit in our lives, Lord. Break our prejudice. Um, Lord, make us witnesses for the sake of your name. Um, Empower us with your spirit so that we can proclaim the gospel powerfully um, so that your name might be glorified. Uh, Lord, I just pray you be with us and help us to fulfill your mission as we go out from here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.